The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, good morning, Bethlehem. My name is Paul Delahunt, and I have the joy of serving as an elder here at the downtown campus. Uh, My wife, Heather, and I live in Plymouth with our five children, and we've been members at Bethlehem here for a long time. It's really a joy to preach the Word of God to you this morning. So why don't you turn in your Bibles to the end of Acts 5. The sermon this morning is entitled, Ready to Rejoice. Ready to Rejoice. And we'll be reading starting in verse 33. Acts 5, 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee named a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to be opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles... They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease preaching and teaching that the Christ is Jesus. And join with me as I pray. Lord, we come to the scriptures now. We ask for a desire to know and to obey your will. We ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. Give me purity of heart. Give me clarity of speech. Make the promises and goodness of Christ savory to the hearts of everyone here. May your word dwell in us richly so that afterward we may all sing together with joy and thankfulness in our hearts. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we continue to make our way through the book of Acts in a series called The Church on the Move. And I always laugh a little bit at the juxtaposition of starting a series with that title right in the middle of pandemic restrictions um, because it's felt like we've been held back in some ways over the last 12 to 15 months. And today we get to to lose the masks. And I know that for some of you, uh, it's been a long season of having to wear masks. Um, And I just want to thank you for bearing with the leadership of the church as we have sought to do what we thought was right in leading the congregation. And hopefully, it's been something you've been able to bear with joy. And so now as we transition to uh, no masks, there's another group in our service who has to bear with one another. And so my invitation to all of us is that we would bear with one another in a way that honors God, glorifies Him, and redounds to joy in our own hearts. So, What it makes for a church on the move. And that's the title of our series. 
I thought now today as we gather without the restrictions, let's be reminded, what makes for a church like that? Why is the church ever on the move? And what came to mind is the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 2. He was near the end of his life. He was imprisoned. He was under very severe restrictions. And he said this, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains, as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. The church is not on the move when the circumstances of our society align with what we believe. The church is not on the move when the prevailing winds are with us. It's often the opposite way around. So I'm reminded of uh, a quote from Martin Luther. A couple of weeks ago, we celebrated the 500-year anniversary of his famous moment where he said, here I stand, I can do no other when he was on trial. And here's what he wrote and preached in a sermon just one year later. He said, I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amstorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. So the church is on the move when believers are faithfully proclaiming with boldness the word of God. And so as we turn to our text, I have a question. What conviction guided the apostles in this moment in our text? Were they thinking primarily about how the gospel was going to land on the Sanhedrin? Were they willing to adjust the message in order to make an easier path for themselves? No, they weren't. No, they were captivated by the good news about Jesus Christ. And we see this back in chapter 4. So chapter 5 feels a lot to me like a reprise of chapter 4. There's an arrest, a trial, and the apostles are like, oh. And in verse 29, the church receives Peter and John, and they pray like this. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So here at Bethlehem, we're celebrating an awesome thing. God has been faithful to our church for 150 years, where we, uh, in good times and bad, I think, I hope, have faithfully proclaimed the gospel. So we praise God for that. And we ask, how are we going to be faithful into the future? How are we going to continue to be a church on the move? And how will that be the case, particularly, should things get more challenging in our society? It's a real question. But we will remain on the move if we remain unshakably grounded in the word of Christ. If our hearts treasure Christ above all else, and if that treasure is in heaven and not here on the earth. And here at the end of Acts 5, we see a group of men who are bound by that same conviction, do we not? They are ready to rejoice in persecution. They are ready to rejoice in the word. And so they go from being nearly murdered to being beaten and released. They go from being told, don't preach in the name of Jesus, to going right back and preaching in that name. And so we're going to see the rage of the rulers, the laughter of God, and the joy of the apostles. That's my outline this morning. The rage of the rulers, the laughter of God, and the joy of the apostles. 
So first, let's look at the rage. And we can go back to verse uh, 27 in Acts 5 to get some context. This was Jared's sermon last week. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, and yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So go ahead and put yourself right there in the room with the Sanhedrin and you have the council gathered, you have the apostles gathered, you have Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, remember him, we'll actually come back to him, Judas the son of James, and the new guy, Matthias. And the council says, we told you not to talk about this man Jesus. We told you to stop talking about the resurrection of the dead. And not only are you doing that, but you are bringing his blood upon us. And how does Peter respond, speaking for all the apostles? He says, we can't stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. And you actually did murder him. That's an explosive moment. What happens? What's the next thing that happens in the room? It's explosive emotion. Rage comes to the surface. The commentator Eckhart Schnabel says this, The use of this verb, enraged, which denotes strong emotion, suggests that there was a visible reaction to what Peter said. Perhaps faces red with fury, raised fists, and shouted insults. The Sanhedrin really hates Jesus and his followers. And this emotion has been bubbling now for a while. So back at the beginning of chapter 4, when the apostles were arrested the first time, Peter and James in particular, It says that the Sanhedrin was greatly annoyed that they were talking about him, that they were preaching the resurrection. The Sadducees in particular did not like that. Um, Then at the beginning of this arrest, we hear that the Sanhedrin was filled with jealousy. So annoyance, jealousy, and now in our text today, the two things combine and bubble up together to produce rage. And while they don't follow through with murdering the apostles the way that they planned, It's a foretaste of what's to come because we know that in a couple of chapters at the end of Acts 7, they will be enraged again. In fact, Luke tells us that they grind their teeth, they're so mad, at Stephen. And they make of him the first martyr of the church. Rage. Maybe this should remind us of how the apostles have been processing their persecution. Remember back in chapter 4? How did the church pray when Peter and John returned to them. They actually prayed Psalm 2. They said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So the apostles are processing their situation through the lens of Psalm 2. And I think there's a lot of overlap between Psalm 2, how that plays out, and what's playing out for the apostles here. And so we're going to go back and forth a little bit throughout the sermon. As we think about the rage, 
of these rulers. I have five observations. First, the world hates Christ and his gospel. We are taught in Acts 5 and Psalm 2 that the natural way of things is that the gospel is in conflict with political powers. We talk about the church and state here in America, the typical state of things that the church and state are opposed. And so we remember from Psalm 2, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And what do they say? They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Brothers and sisters, as far as I know, in our 150 years, I think for Bethlehem, America has been an easy place to be, all things considered. The world still hates the real Jesus, though, and the world still hates real Christians. That's just the reality. That's the way it is. And if things get more challenging here in our country, um, what will it mean for us to be ready to face the rage of the rulers? What will, it be, what will it mean for us to be ready to rejoice in that state? You could just bear that in mind for the rest of this sermon. Second, Jesus told us beforehand that the world would hate the church. So in John 15, Jesus says this to the apostles, right as he's about to die. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so the apostles would not have been surprised. They would not have been surprised. Third, God is sovereign in salvation. We will be helped to remember that God saves by his own grace. He saved the apostles by his own grace. He saved the church by his own grace. And yet not everyone is chosen. We just heard it in John 15. I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Fourth, the church is called to preach the gospel faithfully. The gospel is what God uses to call his own from darkness into light. And in just a couple of verses, we're going to see that actually with some of these same rulers who are listening to this message. In Acts 6, verse 7, it says, a number of priests, I think it says a great number of priests, became obedient to the faith. So we should not fudge on the gospel. We should not be ashamed of the gospel, but rather we should proclaim it just like these apostles did. God bears fruit with that, and that is how he brings any of us to salvation. And so then fifth, we are called to be ready for the rage. The apostle Peter later on, he's going to write, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. Don't be surprised. So if you want your soul to survive the rage, you have to be ready to rejoice. Because once the trial hits, it's too late. You're either ready or you're not. So bear those things in mind now as we go to the next point, the laughter of God. We're going to turn to Psalm 2. Go ahead and turn there. I'm going to actually read the whole thing. Some of it's going to sound familiar to you at the beginning here. Let's go ahead and read Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Right, we just, we just read that a little while ago. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them in pieces with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so remember, as the apostles are processing their persecution, what's running through their minds? It appears to be Psalm 2 because they were just praying it. And so as we look at Psalm 2, as we look as the rulers cast off the cords of Yahweh, what is God's reaction? What is his response? Well, it says that he laughs at them and holds them in derision. Which is just another way of saying that he's mocking them. So I was trying to think of maybe a visual example of what this looks like. And so naturally my my thoughts went to the Lord of the Rings because it's fantastic. Um, I'm a big fan. And in the second movie, the second book, Gandalf, who's the good wizard, arrives in the kingdom of Rohan. He strides into the royal hall to confront the king, Theoden, who is possessed by the wicked wizard, Saruman. And as this confrontation ensues, Theoden, who's, again, kind of possessed by the wicked wizard, he begins to laugh. It's this long, drawn-out laugh. It's a wicked laugh. And then through Theoden, Saruman says, you have no power here, Gandalf the Grey. And so as I thought about that example, and I thought about other examples, it struck me that what you typically see when the powerful mock the powerlessness of the weak, it's the villain, it's the evil one in the story. And so maybe as we look at Psalm 2 here, there's something that strikes us strange, that God is the one doing this to his enemies. But this is exactly what you need. If you're going to rejoice in suffering, you need a sovereign God. It will give you ballast in your boat. How? Well, it provides God's perspective on suffering, on fearful circumstances, right? It teaches us that God is sovereign, that the nations are only a drop in the bucket to him, that he opens and no one closes, that he closes and no one's open and no one opens. We learn that God has complete control in the face of the rage, that he has absolute authority, and that he is present no matter how far he appears to be. He is present to judge his enemies. And so what do you need to be ready to rejoice? You need the sovereignty of God. You need the sovereignty of God. That's why we sing songs like this. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. So strap on that truth. We're going to parachute back into Acts 5. And something jumps out as you look at this situation. We have all 12 apostles on trial. We have the council enraged. They want to kill them. It's just interesting to imagine how history could have played out a little bit differently. What if all 12 apostles would have been killed at this early moment, this infantile moment of church history? 
We don't know because God intervened. God intervened through the words of Gamaliel. Who was Gamaliel? Well, the text tells us that he was a Pharisee and that he was well-respected by all the people. And we know from history this is true. In fact, it seems that he was the first Jewish teacher to have the title of rabbi, which I found interesting. I did not know that until uh, studying for this. We know that the Apostle Paul studied under Gamaliel and that he was the grandson of Hillel, whose name might be familiar to you because he's another famous Jewish teacher. And so when Gamaliel stands up, it's a big deal. He's an important man. The room grows quiet, passions are restrained, and they give him an ear. And what does he say? Well, if you go to verses 38 and 39, I think we see the crux of his argument. He says, In the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to be opposing God. And now, Gamaliel, he's more right than he knows, is he not? The council is opposing God. They are going to fail. God is going to deliver his church. But something strikes me a little bit about his argument. Wouldn't it always be true? Don't we always not want to oppose God? Don't we always want to avoid the things that are going to to fail? So the council could have responded to Gamaliel by saying something like, yeah, Gamaliel, we hear you, but these men are opposing God, and so we're going to punish them. So Gamaliel's advice, although there's wisdom in it, maybe it's a bit weak. In the moment, however, God sovereignly provided for the church through his advice. It's a reminder that God's ways are higher than our ways. The church remains on the move because God's got his hand on its future. Now, of course, Gamaliel provides us with a couple of examples of false teachers who came to nothing, Thutis and Judas. So who were these men? Well, with Thutis, it seems like we may not have all of his history uh, available to us. The Jewish historian Josephus tells about a man named Thutis. Um, He tells about how he conceived of himself to be a prophet, how he persuaded a number of the people to sell or to take all their possessions and join him on a pilgrimage to the Jordan River. It seems that he perceived of himself as a modern-day Elijah or a modern-day Joshua, and he was going to split the river and lead the people to freedom. But the Romans caught up with him and, and put him to death, and that was the end of that. The challenge is that the dates aren't quite right. So Josephus has this Thutis in AD 45, and that timing doesn't line up with the way the text lays it out. And so Thutis was a fairly common name, or at least it wasn't uncommon. So maybe that there was another Thutis. For our purposes, I'll just assume that Josephus had his dates wrong as we consider the example. What about Judas the Galilean? So he arose a couple of years actually after Jesus was born. We actually know a lot more about him. He hated the registration tax. So you remember Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem in order to be registered. Well, Judas hated the registration tax. It was an affront to his Jewish patriotism, and so he led a rebellion against the tax. He actually founded the movement of the hypernationalist group, the Zealots, which I find interesting because Simon the Zealot, again, is one who waits outside while Gamaliel gives his advice. It's possible that Gamaliel's words are a little over-optimistic about, si- or about Judas's movement. 
because just a couple of decades later, the zealots are the ones who lead the rebellion against Rome. That rebellion ends poorly because the Romans come and destroy the temple in AD 70. So is there anything that we can learn from these two examples? Well, certainly they prove to be false saviors, destructive saviors. And we actually see their type today, right? We've got Thutis. Who is he? Well, he led a hyper-spiritual apocalyptic cult. Do we have those today? What about Judas? He led with a theocratic, revolutionary ideology. Do we have those today? Yeah, 2,000 years doesn't change human nature all that much. And so while we might wish to be like the apostles, we are tempted to abandon the gospel to choose other saviors. And so maybe we can circle back to Psalm 2, kind of what I alluded to earlier, to address one false savior that I see in the church today. I wonder, is your conception of God, is the way that you know God, is it biblical enough for Psalm 2 to make sense? What do I mean? Well, this God apparently mocks his enemies. Apparently he dashes them to pieces. His wrath is quickly kindled. And that is offensive to modern people. It's offensive. We like a God who comes alongside, who wants to know us, to be interested in us. We might use words like, uh, we, we love that Jesus is gentle and lowly, that he is meek and mild. And we praise God for all those things. Hallelujah, we would not be saved without that reality. But sometimes we can prefer certain attributes of God to others, so much so that we squelch, we dissolve important attributes of God. An example that comes to mind is from the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia. You may remember the Narnians in that story. Uh, they fall for a false Aslan. And why is that? Well, they've taken hold of one part of his character, that he's not a tame lion, and they've forgotten everything else about him. And so they're, they're victims of false theology. That happens for us in the church today. Sometimes we raise up certain attributes of God. I listed one example, but it happens all over the place and all in all uh, corners of God's character, if you will, where we, according to our preference, raise up one, att- one set of attributes and let others uh, diminish. Ironically, a God who only exists to know you is a God who comes around your felt needs, and a God who comes around your felt needs exclusively isn't going to be a God who gets you ready to rejoice. You won't be ready in the day. You won't be ready to worship him as he is. And it's as you worship him as he is that he gives you strength and joy like these apostles to face whatever persecution might come your way. That's how the apostles went about their lives. They were witnessing something that had really happened in concrete history. They were witnesses of something that had taken them by complete surprise, namely the resurrection of Jesus. They were not ready for it and it changed their lives. And so they told the council, we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. They had confidence that came from the sovereignty of the risen Lord, who had told them this, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be first proclaimed to all nations. 
So they were right in the middle of God's will. And they knew it. So it brings us to the third point, the joy of the apostles. So go ahead and look at Acts uh, 5.39 again, starting kind of in the second half of the verse. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So the resurrection and the ascension and Pentecost really did a number on these apostles, right? It's like all the words of Jesus that he had promised to them, like the Mark 13 passage we just read, it's like they dropped into place, they clicked into place, and everything made sense. I have a Honda Odyssey minivan, as I know many of you do, because I see them out in the parking lot every Sunday. And I don't know if I'm the only one who has trouble with this, but when I take the middle seats out, I have the worst time putting them back in. I know they made it easy for you, but for some reason or another, it's hard for me. It's just kind of awkward. You have to get a couple of hooks into place that you can't really see when you're doing the job. And so you think you've got them there, and you let go. You're waiting to hear a clicking sound, and it's, a, it's actually a very satisfying sound. Um, job is done. And most of the time, I don't hear it the first time. The bench just sort of rocks back and forth, and I have to try again. I think that's what Jesus' words were like for the apostles. I'm reminded of the man in Acts 8, the man who, or Mark 8, excuse me, who needed two healings of Jesus in order to be able to see again. Do you remember what happened after the first healing, the first stage? What did he see? He said, I see men like trees. They're like trees walking around. They just didn't quite get it. Or he didn't quite get it. And neither did the apostles. The apostles weren't sure what to make of these things Jesus had told them. But between the resurrection and Pentecost, the Holy Spirit dropped those words into place. And these men went from being frightened fugitives to being bold for the gospel and ready to rejoice in persecution. So what was it that clicked into place? We already read Mark 13. What are some more words of Jesus? Well, here's what I think was on their mind. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever will kill you thinks that he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. The apostles were ready to rejoice because the promises of Jesus were coming true. The rage of the rulers had arrived right on schedule, just like he had said. And the words of Jesus were coming to fill them up. What did he say to do? He said, rejoice. He said, leave for joy. You have a great reward. So I wonder, is there any other kind of joy that could have filled the apostles as they lived through this moment here? I was trying to think about that. Maybe had the Sanhedrin repented of their sins and believed in Christ? But that would have been a different kind of joy. Would it, 
Would it not have been? I mean, this was the joy of the promises of Jesus coming true in their lives and the joy that he brings filling them up in the face of persecution. The joy of the apostles is not based on their ability to spar with the Sanhedrin, but on the unshakable confidence they have in the providence of God, the truth of the gospel, and the worth of Christ. And so they go right back to that message, just like they did in chapter 4. The council charged them, don't speak about Jesus, and what did they do? They left, they leaped for joy, and they went right back to it again. And so here again, thinking of the beginning, we see the marks, the two marks of a church on the move. Confidence in the word of God and joy in the face of persecution. It says that they preach that the Christ is Jesus. And that recalls Psalm 2. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And we see that confession over and over and over again as people believe in Jesus, right? Andrew tells Peter, John 1, we have found the Christ. The woman at the well, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Martha at the tomb of Lazarus, I believe that you are the Christ. Peter at Pentecost, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. There's lots of other examples in Acts, actually, of this very language, and we'll be seeing them in the coming weeks and months. There's an obvious one that I left off the list. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so then what did Jesus say in response? He said, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That confession is the message that keeps the church on the move. The apostles knew that, and so they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And I'm almost done. Don't you want to be like the apostles? Don't you want to have hope like that? Don't you want to be ready to rejoice when your moment comes? I've got two encouragements and a specific warning. I think sometimes we think of persecution only in its severest state, at least when we're thinking about ourselves. Sometimes we undersell, I think, the fact that we're being persecuted. It's like the words of Jesus actually were something like this. Blessed are you when they take you into the garden of Nero, and they put you on a pole, and they cover you with pitch, and they light you on fire. Rejoice in that day. And certainly that's true. There's no doubt about that. But that's not what Jesus said. What did he say? He said, blessed are you when they hate you. Blessed are you when they revile you. Blessed are you when they exclude you. Rejoice then. And so I know that some of you are undergoing that right now in your various contexts of life because I've been talking with you over the last couple of weeks. Don't miss this opportunity to rejoice. Don't downplay whatever suffering you're going through if it's in Christ's name, but rather use it as an occasion to rejoice because your reward is very great. The second encouragement is to sing, is to sing. So one time I heard uh, an exhortation to parents. It was from Zephaniah 3, and it held out two things. It said, in Zephaniah 3, we see a God who is mighty to save. And as he is mighty to save, how does he do that? He exults over us with loud singing. And so the application to parents was, as you sacrifice for your children, 
There should be a song in it. There should be a song in every sacrifice you make. Otherwise, it's not really a sacrifice. At least it's not a godly sacrifice. Today we're celebrating the Lord's table, and I think about Jesus. What did he do? He took the bread, he broke it, he took the cup, passed it, and he spent the evening with his disciples. And Matthew and Mark tell us that when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. Jesus sang his way to Calvary. And so this has application not just for parents, certainly, but to all of us. Do you want to be ready to rejoice in persecution? Then sing the goodness of God. Sing the sufferings of Christ into your heart, and you will be ready. So now the warning. Um, It's often hard to rejoice. Persecution is hard. And one of the challenges is the fact that temptations line the way as we walk forward in it. And so as I was going through my preparation, I was struck by the words of Christ in Matthew 24. And I'll zero in just on the part at the end here. Jesus said, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. So Jesus says that one way that believers respond to persecution poorly is that they turn on one another in hatred. So as you take stock of your own readiness to rejoice, I have a question for each and every one of us, myself included. How are you doing with judgmentalism and disgust toward other believers? How are you doing? Sometimes judgment is warranted and sometimes disgust is the proper response to something in the church. But man, there's just such a wide door for the flesh in that moment. So I just have a question. What's your readiness level to despise other believers? If only those people would, what? Fill in the blank. Maybe for you it's something about masks. Maybe it's something about social justice or politics or race relations. Maybe it's even the future of this church. Well, here's the sobering word from Jesus. If you have a readiness in your heart, if I have a readiness in my heart to be enraged at my fellow Christians, I'm not going to be ready. I'm not going to really be ready when the persecution comes. So how are we going to be ready? How are we going to be able to triumph over the temptations that line our way on the path of persecution? How are we going to be ready to rejoice to be counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name? You know, there was one who was not able to rejoice in his sufferings. There was a joy that was set before him, but in the moment, it was just total desolation for him. It wasn't just the rulers and the authorities who were after him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. His was the suffering of hell. His was the scream of despair. Why have you forsaken me? Why does he suffer like that? Did he suffer for himself? Or was he suffering for others? Was he suffering for you? Was he suffering for me? Brothers and sisters, Jesus the Christ was consumed by his suffering so he could give you indestructible joy in yours.
So no matter what comes, take heart. Take heart. He has overcome the world. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for the goodness of your gospel. We praise you that though we were sinners, though we were enemies, you have come and you have reconciled us to your son. We praise you that you poured out all your wrath on your son, that he suffered in a way that we never could, that he suffered not for his sins but for ours, that he took our place. And so we rejoice that our suffering yields an eternal weight of glory. We rejoice that in our suffering we express our unity with your son, that if he suffered, we will too. And we can do it with the joy the apostles had. So Lord, we come to you now. We ask you to do work in our hearts so that we would be ready. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.